Hello and welcome to the IPA podcast. This is Paul Bainsfair, the Director General of the IPA, and this week I'm going to be talking to James Murphy of Adam and Eve DDB. Okay, so here we are with James Murphy, um, founder, member of Adam and Eve, uh, now Adam and Eve DDB, um, and we're going to talk about his career, uh, his agency, and we're also going to talk about the fact that he's now the chairman of the Advertising Association. So, James, I thought I'd start by asking you how you got into advertising in the first place. And I got into advertising slightly circuitous path because I came down to London from university and didn't know what I wanted to do. I was a van driver for about a year. Someone then said to me, um, "You should think about advertising because you're, you know, you're you talk you're." reasonably eloquent and you like ideas and creativity but you've got a you know you look like you'd like to do a bit of business as well so it was the ideal combination as this was someone you were delivering to at the time it was a, I can't even remember it was a mate who just said look you know the thing about advertising is it's a great mix of commerciality and creativity and that that's the kind of person you are so um, I was drawn towards it and I was driving my van doing deliveries in London and I started buying campaign and it was amazing within about three or four weeks of reading campaign, you've just got an entire feel for the industry, who mm. was, which agencies were hot, who were the big characters, um, where the best work came from. And to me, it sort of looked like an impossibly glamorous industry. As I was driving around Soho, delivering wine and things like that, and you thought, wow, this is the hotbed of all this creativity. And, um, and I was going to apply for some graduate training schemes, and someone said to me, actually, why don't you beef up your CV? You should... Um, try and get one way in is to get work in a post room at an agency and um, I got I got a job in the post room at Bates Dorland which was part of the then massive Saatchi's empire mm. and um, and I worked in there for six months and actually it did work as a great CV filler because I got a I got a, a grad position at Ogilvy on their training scheme which I really really wanted to go to as an agency um, because they had some great accounts, they had a great reputation for being a training agency, and um, and they had the Guinness account, and I was really, really, really wanted to work on the Guinness account because I come from a family of reasonably epic Guinness consumers. <laughs> well, you've come in that case, uh, and you all know this. Um, there's a long line of very successful admin that started in the post room, aren't they? I mean, I think Frank Lowe famously mm-hmm. started mm-hmm. in the post room, and, and goodness knows how many others. I'm not sure today. We we quite have that approach to our intake. Well, I think uh, there's, there's a. Fun- I think we should personally. Yeah. But I, there's a sure. very straightforward reason for why. I mean, postrooms don't exist in the way that they did because about a year after I came into the industry, email arrived. It's impossible to believe that there wasn't email, but there wasn't email. So, all of the imagine all the messages that you send around on email to your colleagues um, every day. The reason there were postboys and girls is because those messages had to be carried by yeah. hand as paper, Into office paper memos, paper yeah. memos yeah. And, and so on. Um, it was a great way into the industry because you got to see all over an agency um, what became very apparent, no matter how um, educated or unusual your background was, is that agencies were phenomenally diverse places and you had a lot of very different types of people uh, coming together to create these amazing campaigns and being in the post room really taught you to sort of get on with all of these different people and that everyone, however educated and articulate or actually monosyllabic and gloomy they were in some <laughs> cases, they all had something to offer 
and you realise that these people all dovetailed together in almost quite a delicate pattern um, to create things that were quite amazing. And um, so I think when you then go on into the industry, it, it means that you have perhaps an appreciation of all of the different things that people do across an agency. Um, obviously, it doesn't really work that way anymore because there isn't a large team of people in a post room um, since the advent of more digital communication. Um, and I think people are now rely a lot more on work experience and so on. And I think we all know some of the issues around that where you know, work experience tends to favour people who either are connected very well or actually can afford to work for very little. Mm. No, absolutely. So anyway, you went to Ogilvy. What a great um, sort of uh, kindergarten that was. For I mean, I imagine some of your contemporaries are all fairly big names now as well, aren't they? Uh, yep. No, I mean, there's um, there were sort of five of us who went in in that graduate intake, and there's um, Johnny Hornby who's running CHI and has founded CHI and running it, and then uh, Nick Howarth, who's his chief executive there, and. Um, it was certainly, you got a very strong sense at Ogilvy of this sort of um, esprit de corps, mm. and this great pedigree of when you looked at the year above you and the year above that and so on, mm. it was full of people that you really aspired to, yeah, to I follow. Yeah, I, no, I recognise that because I had a parallel experience, but it was at Sarge's where we had a similar, you know, year by year intake and you, you watched them all go on and achieve mm. great things, or at least some of them. Yeah. Um, is that where you met Ben Priest? Because he was at Ogilvy, wasn't he? Yes, Ben Priest was the year ahead of me. And um, so I knew him and um, he didn't really talk to me because one, yeah. he was the year ahead of me. You were a junior. And yeah. I was a junior. And secondly, he was transferring into the creative side of the business. Yeah, of course, and so yeah. obviously, you know, count handlers were scum basically in those days. And um, But I remember thinking how he, he made a strong impression on me and one that obviously I remembered years later when we were looking for a CD at Rainey Kelly. Brilliant. So... Talk about the, you know, let's talk about how you started Adam and Eve, because that, starting an agency, mm. I think lots of advertising people really have that as a dream, you mm. know, to actually, you went and did it. What was the story? How did it come about? I think it's, uh, it's not something that I ever thought I would do when I came into the industry, but after three years at Ogilvy, I, I wanted a change and I moved to Rainey Kelly, which was a startup at that point. I was about the 10th or 11th person in. And that experience of working with, Jim Kelly, M.T. Rainey, Robert Campbell and Mark Rolfe was very, very transformative. I felt like I'd almost entered an entirely different industry and, and learned all over again a whole new way of looking at things. And I think from that moment on, I thought it would be great to do this one day. And uh, it's interesting to see that M.T. Rainey got, uh, I think, an OBE a couple of weeks ago in the, in the Queen's Birthday Honours. And one of part of that, I believe, was services to advertising including inspiring creativity and startups mm. and so on i can certainly say that she did that as and, and her other partners as well so from those early days at rainy kelly i was fancy doing a startup um but actually i stayed there for a number of years and grew to be kind of managing director and then ultimately chief exec and we've gone through the merger with ynr and so on and certainly then arrived at a point where I thought, you know what, it was brilliant being in a startup and I've loved growing and then being in charge of a big agency, um, but can we do it ourselves? And, um, and I think Jim had always sort of, Jim Kelly had always slightly sort of chided me and, you know, said, you know, you're not a real man in advertising until you've done your own startup and, <laughs> and so on. And, um, and I remember it was almost just a realisation that having been CEO at Rainey's for about three years, I was thinking, okay, 
it's it's starting to get a bit repetitive. Let's let's have a think about this. And so I decided I wanted to do it. And then, funnily enough, Ben and David had reached a similar conclusion, and um, and so we decided to do it. And uh, and I think you look back on it now, um, which is what uh, seven years later, and it's it's strange because you start out and you have a lot of there's a lot of kind of nerves in the sense of you know will anyone come will mm. anyone want to work with you mm. and and so on but it's amazing the sort of supportive um society that we have in our industry because when we launched you know someone in another agency gave us a room uh, to squat in for six months for free um, and the new business consultants give you opportunities very quickly because one you're exciting because you're new and secondly I think they're interested to get the measure of you so mm-hmm. we there are actually no shortages of things to pitch for and um, and so we built up momentum fairly quickly doing doing pitches and winning pitches and despite being very small we were able to do a bit of giant killing along the way I mean our, our first pitches were against big agencies like Lowe's and TBWA and, and so mm. on and um, and I think perhaps there's that big enduring lesson about our industry which is a lot of it is about momentum and we picked up momentum quite quickly and I suppose haven't really looked back since. It's funny you mentioned that supportive nature of of the advertising agency community in in London it's not I mean I've talked about this to well Carl Johnson who who I work with in London who now has Anomaly as you know is based in New York it's completely different in New York there's there isn't that sense I mean we fight fight hard with one another, it's very oh. competitive. But it's a bit like a sport, I always think, in London. Everybody enjoys each other's company outside of the match. Yep. But it's not, apparently that's not true in New York. Well, they all hate each other. I, we, we are very lucky, I think, to work in an environment where it is still a bit of a village um, in the sense that we all know each other and we're all roughly, even if there are agencies in the east of London and the west of London and so on, it, it's still effectively a village. But the village is actually one of the world's preeminent creative marketplaces. And um, so you've got a huge amount of very talented, very gifted and just very eloquent and amusing and entertaining people all working in close proximity. Um, I, I often think one of the most bracing things about the industry is that effectively it's a bit like the premiership. You know, there are about probably 10 a dozen agencies that are really, really good. And they sit at the top of this premiership and they play each other all season and campaign, helpfully provide a new business league that we all go up and down. And, uh, the gun... and sometimes people get transferred from one to the yeah. other. And yeah, and the gun report provides a creative league table yeah. that we go up and down. And um, and I think we're... And we are. It's literally like going out to, to play each other when you when you pitch. Mm. And I love that sense that you know you know some of the people on the other agencies pitching teams. And if you don't, you try and find out who are on the other teams to try and work out how you'll get the better of them in the nicest possible way. And um, and it's the industry has this a competitive dynamic that feels energetic and fun and sort of in, engaging. It's it's not kind of a terrible pressure. It's actually. You know, someone said to me once, you know, you're in an industry where you get you get rewarded quite well for playing sport creatively. Mm. And and I think whilst that sounds a little bit glib, I think there is an element of truth. Well, it's funny we're talking about London being a sort of preeminent uh, 
city, I suppose, for advertising. It's Cam Week. I mean, you're the you're kind of like the reigning champions. I mean, mm. you you cleaned up uh, last year. I think you were Agency of the Year at Can uh, last year, and you've done that since you've become mm. Adam and Eve DDB. So I, I've I probably just to complete the story. It's worth talking about. You know, the the transformation from small independent startup mm. to now one of the big dogs mm. uh, on the scene yep. and and part of an international network. So. Just, just talk to me a little bit about that that change. So, yeah, I don't think we ever, if we looked at it and we say, look, we started the agency seven, seven and a bit years ago, and I don't think we ever really had in our mind that we would be um, where we are now. Um, but after three, three and a half years, we were approached, and the fact that it was DDB that approached us was kind of really knocked us sideways because you're thinking okay this is one of the great global agency brands and it is of network agencies it is the creative network agency and um so we were very and we were very intrigued by the fact that we got a good creative pedigree but we also had a very very strong background in effectiveness and ddb had those as well it was very Mm. similar in its kind of in its outlook and almost its personality as an agency and um, so we were absolutely blown away by the idea that they might want to um, create something with us. And um, it took the best part of a year, actually, to, you know, to sort it out. And funnily enough, it was a discussion that started, believe it or not, outside the gutter bar and can at about <laughs> four in the morning. I don't think but it's that uh, unusual. Yeah. I think quite a lot of agencies have started there. Yeah, yeah. well, and I think it started as a, as a probably a... a a jokey conversation and then obviously became a lot more serious but um the and for us it it's been great because essentially we've got to have this great challenge of how do we take this adam and eve culture and this kind of more boutique and intimate way of working and then magnify it across a bigger client list and in many cases across clients who are multinational and um and also to but whilst always having an eye on you know the great heritage that DDB has, and and it's just been phenomenal. And I and I think one of the things I'd say is that when I when I look at it in the last few years, it almost feels to me like there are two things that are brilliant to be in this industry, and one of them is the kind of the feisty boutique startup, you know that very small agency um, esprit de corps, and then the other one is to be one of the bigger beasts where you've actually got the clout to go out there and pitch for really big things or to approach a really big complex client and turn their business around because you have not just the smarts to do it but you've got the, the logistics to do it as well. Brilliant. And, and you know, it has been, quite honestly, an amazing, uh, amazingly successful few years for you. Um, and I, I even, I mean, I talked about Ken, I think you're also the Grand Prix holder of the IPA Effectiveness Award with, with your Foster's work. So everywhere I look, there are trophies. Mm. So well done to you. Um, so now you're also going to be the chairman of the Advertising Association. Um, I'm not sure everybody out there really knows what the Advertising Associate, yep. Association does. I mean, yep. we do, but mm. can you just give us a sort of quick summary of, of what you think your role is going to be there and, and what you might yeah. achieve. And I mean, I think, the, well, the Ad Association brings together really the, I mean, a lot of different industry organisations, but they represent three broad sectors. So the, the agency world, the media owners, and then the advertisers. And it's the organisation that faces into government and legislators and, and so on. And um, And I think 
for me, it's it's an organisation that has been, over the last few years has made a very very strong case for the power of this industry and this industry in the broader advertising and marketing marketing community. Um, some of the things that we need to consider is uh, because the AA has made a very strong case for the contribution of the industry to the domestic economy. I think we now need to look slightly further afield and say. What is our contribution in terms of almost exports? Because we are we are a world class market for marketing services, and certainly in our own experience at our agency, we grew a, we a, we grew a large amount last year. Over sixty percent of that growth came from overseas markets because they think London is a great place to do this kind of work, and I think we need to keep making that case. I think the other thing that we need to be wary of is there are always um, single, issue, single issue pressure groups and, and lobby groups that will try and curtail what this industry does and in some cases there are good reasons for that where products may have been launched or evolved that aren't great for, he, for people or for society but there are often instances where you have politicians or policy makers trying to make a name for themselves by clipping our wings. And as we know advertising is often, anyway, in the eyes of politicians, quite an easy thing to attack because it, it seems almost like a victimless mm. thing. They can do it. It looks good on their CV. Uh, and they don't often think about the consequences or, or you know, what the unintended consequences yeah. might be. No, I think we're ripe for gesture politics, if you mm. can put it that way, that um, it's an easy target to go for and uh, with not a lot of collateral damage in the, the eyes of a politician. Um, but I think equally we need to make the case robustly in the other direction, which is this is one of our country's globally leading industries. It's something we should be very proud of. And equally, it's an industry that does a lot of good. On one level, it fuels information and the more perfect distribution of knowledge and information in a market economy. But um, secondly, there is a huge amount of good that is done by um, agencies and clients and programming producers and media owners in terms of um, pro bono work and so on. When you look at the amount of support that agencies give to uh, charities, to public information campaigns, uh, when you look at the media owner space that's given over to those things... um, and you look at the client involvement in those things. There's a huge amount of work being done that is positive in society um, because I think a lot of those companies, and a lot of those brands, understand very clearly what their responsibilities are. Definitely. And I think, well, it's good to hear you say those things, particularly given that our current agenda, led by, by Tom Knox, of course, is advertising here for good. And we'll be addressing, at least from the advertising agency's point of view, a lot of those questions. Um, but no, all, all in all, I, th- I think it's, um, it's a tremendous organisation, the AA, and I think it's, over the last few years, it really has made its mark in a way that perhaps in previous years it, it, it failed to do. So it's great to have you there. Thank you very much. So now we get on to the fun part of the, of the chat, which is really um, me asking you a few daft questions. Um, and I suppose the first one is um, uh, a favourite book, okay. or a book you would recommend. Yeah. I, I, I was thinking about this and I thought, and it had one of those kind of mental blanks, um, but then I thought, really the book that, in the context of this discussion, might be Lord of the Rings, because it's a book that I came to late. I actually read, ended up reading Lord of the Rings when we were starting Adam and Eve. Uh, 
And um, I don't know quite why. But you should have been too busy to be reading no, exactly. a great tone but like that. When I, when, I, when I read it, it really reminded me of the slight feeling of doing a startup because you are a kind of small band of friends who, with a very shared idea of where you want to go. And, um, and you face all sorts of challenges. And in some cases, you know, large and very implacable foes. And when I was reading this book, I thought it spoke to me a lot at that particular moment in time. And, um, and it's just a great book. It's a, it's a ripping yarn. And, well, I, I've got a terrible confession to make. I've never read it. I mean, I couldn't even get through the films, but uh, maybe that's just me. But obviously, it's one of the great, great novels. Um, and what about Hero? Who's your, who's your, um, who's your hero, living, living or dead? Who would you, who would you, who um, would you choose? I suppose probably my my hero is probably my grandfather on my father's side. He um, he was um, a young man in Southern Ireland, growing up on a farm, and he was um, he was kind of ejected from the family and uh, at a very young age for rebellious and sort of uproarious behaviour. Sent to a family sheep farm in New Zealand. When he came back, he actually docked in Liverpool at the outbreak of the First World War and signed up um, immediately and fought for the whole four years, which is arithmetically quite hard to survive. Mm. And um, and then was a... I mean, he was always a big character and a very big... Um, he went on through a number of different jobs and roles. Um, everyone who knew him talked about what, what a strong character and what, what an impression he made on them in their lives. He went on despite having lived such a sort of righteous life and, you know, never really holding back from smoking or drinking or anything like that. He lived to the ripe old age of 99. And um, So you got to know him quite well. Oh, yeah, I knew him. And, um, and he made a very big impression on me. And he was one of those people who you definitely looked at and you thought he absolutely kind of epitomises that kind of carpe diem thing of just, you know what, you've got one life, absolutely live it and go for it. Brilliant. Brilliant. What was his What was his name then? He was called James Murphy. Well. Oh, so. <laughs> I love it. Okay, so and the last question is: What's your, What's your all time favourite ad? Uh, you can choose one you've worked mm. on. It can be one you didn't. What Which ad is the one up there for you that you feel the best about? I think. I mean, it is very difficult because there are so many that are really, really good. I suppose if I had to talk personally, it is one of ours because actually it's not just a really good ad, it's something that made a big difference to us, which was um, the first big campaign we did for John Lewis, which was an ad called Always a Woman, which was um, about really a tiny girl growing up and going through life. And we were effectively really just trying to hold a mirror up to the heartland John Lewis consumer and uh, a a female audience who really do have this lifelong relationship with this brand in quite an understated way. But it was the first time that really, in many ways by accident, we kind of hit on this quite emotional way of expressing brands. And um, it had an astonishing effect for John Lewis. It had an astonishing effect for us because it really sort of a year, year and a half into our agency, suddenly we burst onto the a more global stage people were suddenly went wow who did this oh it's mm. a startup in London and it was a watershed moment for the agency so it's not just a really nice piece of work that I think touched quite a lot of people it's it's actually something that really made a yeah. difference to us and, and it's and it's still true isn't it how when you are creating an agency a brand you do need those sort of milestones those 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 kind of ideas that stand out above the rest that really allow people to yeah. I suppose 
characterise the agency, get to know it and think of it. Well, and, and I think it, it's interesting because there's a lot of hot air and thousands of man hours expended in our industry about trying to create rhetoric and language about what we do as agencies. What's our agency's vision? What's our agency's rhetoric? And so on. And we really ought to believe a bit more in what we do, which is the, the power of our work. Because the truth is, out there, our, our clients and potential clients are just as busy as consumers. And they notice the work you do. And so when you do something great, there's no doubt that a lot, a lot of clients that we ended up working with were clients who said, who did that John Lewis thing? Yeah. We'd like to have a chat with them and see what they're like. We are what we do Yeah. in the end. Well, look, James, it's been brilliant talking to you. That's been a fascinating sort of walk through your career to date. Good luck with the, uh, the AA job. And um, we look forward to even more success from Adam and Eve DDP in the future. Thank you very much. It's been a pleasure. Well, I hope you enjoyed our chat to James Murphy. I know I did. Next week, I'm going to be roving around Cannes with my microphone and getting a few opinions on what it's good for and perhaps what it's not. This has been Paul Bainsfair and this has been the IPA podcast. <laughs>